0: we pretty much subscribe to most test-driven development ideologies. And I think for a lot of folks out there that are detractors from that or people who believe that it takes too much time or there's not enough value there. But whenever you work in an environment where you do write tests for your code or where you do things in these ways, you start to realize how much value there is in safety and in confidence. And that allows you to move in these micro paper cut size changes all day, every day. And And again, like I said, it kind of feeds into that. Being able to get 1% better a day, you know, makes you like 37 times better in a year. So trying not to worry so much about like, what can I get done in a day? Or what can I get done this week? Or trying to do the, the cognitive burden of all the mental gymnastics that requires is just focusing on like, how can I deliver the smallest amount of value as consistently as possible?
1: From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Welcome to the CTO Studio. Today we talk to TJ Taylor, EJ Allen, about their software development methodology over at Mobilize. I loved my conversation because clearly they are ethos-driven, values-driven, and it's amazing to see concepts like trunk-based development, feature flags, all empowering a team to be more creative, to be more safe, and to get more done. So enjoy. EJ, TJ, two people, two instances of the human genome. Welcome to the CTO studio.
0: Thanks for having us. Happy yeah, to be, to be here. here.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. You guys are both with Mobilize. EJ, your CTO, and TJ, your staff engineer. Nice. So EJ and I have been riffing on the software development process, trunk-based development, feature flags, the agile manifesto in so-called agile processes. So I would love to dig in a little bit into the world of maybe a good place to start, how the software development process works. And I'm sure you're going to say one or two things that pique my interest or is going to potentially send EJ off on some rant. So, and that's what I'm, TJ, you're on my mission is to activate EJ. Is that an agreement we can make?
2: I think that's a daily
0: goal of mine.
1: (laughs) Well, what's great about that is that TJ is equally passionate
0: about these things, which is exactly why I've brought him. So this should be a lively conversation.
1: I love it. Okay. So why don't you guys just tell me what is Mobilize? I am actually violently attracted to the Mobilize cause since I am, you know, founded seven CTOs. And in talking with EJ, we share a lot of the same philosophy about community engagement, tooling towards that goal. Tell me a little bit about Mobilize and then we can dig in. Yeah, awesome. So my
0: name is EJ Allen. I am the CTO at Mobilize.io. My real name is Eric, but there's always at least two Eric's at every tech company I've ever worked at. So EJ's always been what people there's call me. There's
1: always Eric's and there's always Brian's. Yeah,
0: totally. Not to mention, like having like a two-letter email is pretty cool. Let's face it. It's, uh, it's like a flex. So what is Mobilize.io? So Mobilize is it's a professional networking platform. And the reason that we say that we exist is really to connect people, to build communities of trust and unlock human potential. And I think what's really cool about mobilize. And one of the reasons it's easy to be passionate about coming to work every day is because not only do we try to build the tools that enable communities of people to do their best work in life, but we're sort of a product of our own product as well. And by that, I mean, as an engineering team, as a company, and as an organization, you know, we sort of exist to build a community of trust, to connect with each other, and to unlock human potential. There's a lot there. We can kind of unpack what that means. And a lot of that ethos personally comes from sort of the path that I've walked in my technology career and, you know, how connecting with people and having a really nice community has really uplifted me and unlocked a lot of potential for myself. And so, you know, ultimately, that's why we exist. That's why I love coming to work every day. And and that's why it's it's easy to feel a a good connection with Mobilize.
1: Do you have a specific Ruby community or, or what is it that you've created? Outside of Mobilize, you're also leading some other initiatives, right?
0: Well, outside of Mobilize, I've always been A member of many different Ruby communities. So like when I lived in the Denver area, the Denver Ruby community is an absolutely thriving and amazing network of folks. Same with the Rails community there. But outside of that, I've sort of been cultivating a community that is more of a private one in my personal life of all the folks that I've met all along the way. And that particular community is a community that has done events outside of work. And we all connect with each other on a personal level. And And every single person that's part of that community, some of whom I'll probably mention in this conversation today, have really played a key role. And it kind of is just a testament to the power of community and how building communities of trust, connecting with people can really unlock potential for everybody. I mean, let's face it, community is really the tide that rises all boats. Getting to work on that every day is is something that's easy to be passionate about.
1: Honestly, for me, it's the prime directive because we are wired to connect. Scientifically, we are just more fulfilled when we learn from others. Now, this little private group you have. There's a secret handshake. There's no secret handshake. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we should. Maybe we should work on one. I don't know. And are you using Mobilize to keep them in touch, or do you use like? I know I spoke with someone the other day who actually has. She has a Slack community that she literally the same approach you have. She's done, and she she does that through Slack. Do you use Mobilize or Slack or what? Over the years, we've
0: used a few different tools. We don't currently use Mobilize to facilitate this one. Mobilize is really specific to you know, more professional networks. We serve a lot of nonprofits and associations. We serve communities that are as large as like, you know, 60, 70, 80, 100,000 people. So a little bit different perspective on that. But I think the ethos and the values and the foundation of what it means to be a part of a thriving community are the same across those different networks. And regardless of the tool that you're using for each of those use cases, I think one of the reasons that we kind of came up with like those three components of what it means to have a vibrant community is because we we ask ourselves the question, you know, what must exist for a community to be vibrant and to be healthy? And of course, trust is a key component and empathy, connection. And then of course, you know, the unlocking of, of potential and, and having people have a reason to be there and wanting to come back to it and getting value from it.
1: I love it. Yeah, I use Mailer Damon to manage my lists. <laughs> okay. Hey, if it
2: works, don't knock it.
1: <laughs> I'm like, we're still emailing each other. So, TJ, who are you, man? Yeah, I am TJ Taylor. I am a staff engineer at
2: Mobilize.io. I joined about a month after EJ. I come from a background of writing software with various teams and helping them just unlock their potential as development teams. Majority of my career was spent at Pivotal Labs, helping teams, you know, implement agile processes, learn test driven development, and just be able to do their best work at work. And I feel like that ethos has stuck with me through the various jobs that I've had for my entire career. Been really excited to bring that to Mobilize as well. One of the things that is really cool, while we do dog food Mobilize internally as well, we build this community of engineers on our team and use that to like do our best work every day.
1: Interesting. A community of engineers. It's the first time in a while that I've heard the word ethos said so many times in five minutes. I'm drawn to that. I can tell there's a set of values that you guys take very seriously and principles. And I think that's why I was so excited to talk to you, to be sort of in that values-driven environment, dare I say, ethos-driven environment. So do we want to talk a little bit about your development process? Maybe just give us, a, as far as your team topology, as far as how you deliver software to the organization maybe just unpack that a little bit. I think towards the end, I, I would love to dig in a little bit into this concept of community, the pillars of community through your eyes, since you guys are in this this tool, building these tools. So let's maybe start with that.
0: TJ, why don't you give me a little bit of an overview of what the day-to-day looks like for our team, and then we can kind of dig into maybe some of like the higher-level like macro layer uh, ideals that kind of drive that. Totally. So from a purely tactical
2: standpoint, we are developing a largely Ruby on Rails monolith and basically practice-based development. We don't do continuous delivery, but we do use CI tools to deploy our software at a regular clip. We're often deploying multiple times per day. As an engineer, your process is pick up a piece of work, whether that's a story or something that you've worked on with our design team or a product team, and implement that in a pull request We you do use GitHub for our source code management once that pull request is approved because you have either paired with somebody on it or you've had a full re- asynchronous review you merge that to our development mainline and then from there we have a slack-based deployment tool that we can use to deploy mm. to production whenever things are ready
1: so let's stop there for a second and just define some terminology through the eyes of your process so what is trunk-based development what is continuous delivery just from colloquially What is it in your world? For sure. Trend based development
2: is the practice of using a mainline that all developers work off on a regular basis. And from a principles perspective, one of the things you're trying to avoid is long running branches other than the mainline. So these branches might be things like feature work that you're working on that is not quite ready for customers to see yet. Or it might be something that's like a hot fix that you need to build immediately, like because something went wrong on your mainline. And avoiding those two things is really valuable from a Process and cognitive load perspective, because if you have one mainline, everything is just off of that mainline.
1: I haven't heard the term mainline. So, you know, I do live under a rock. Mainline is such a sweet, beautiful thing, not to be confused with the production deployable main or mar- used to be referred to as master. You're not talking about main, are you? Or are you talking about main? So, from a
2: naming perspective, we have a dev branch that is the main line for our trunk-based development process.
1: And I spoke with Pato at Split.io and he he explained to me that the goal of trunk-based development is even feature flagging is not to test in production. It is with trunk-based development, it's the constant merging with the dev branch slash what you're calling the main line. Totally. And from a rules perspective or however you want to implement this, it could
2: be your production line. I've worked on teams where that is the case. I think from a cognitive load perspective and being able to just think about things more cleanly, it's a nice safety feature to have a step between a dev merge something and production. I think that in a future world, we can get there at Mobilize. We're just not there currently.
1: Is that what the Slack interface does then? is Then does the actual merge from mainline to production line and then kicks off the delivery scripts.
2: Yep. We built that Slack integration because the GitHub UI for merging does not support the merge strategy that we want. So whenever a dev is working on a feature branch that, like I said, these are really short-lived branches, they might be a day or two. They can have as many commits as they want on those branches. We take then those commits and squash and merge them to the mainline. And we do that for a couple of different reasons. One is it allows you to just not have to think about keeping your commits in the most pristine format because oftentimes developers in these short iteration cycles are working on a chunk of work. And while you may build very discrete commits that are well-defined and could be committed to the mainline, you might not. And so to avoid having just like bookkeeping and toil in managing those commits, we allow you to squash and merge to the mainline. The thing about GitHub is whenever you define a merge strategy, you can't use different ones for different branches. And so we don't want to squash and merge to the production line. We want that to match our main line so that whenever you need to roll back, it's the exact same branch. The like history of those two branches is the exact
1: same so that you can revert individual commits along that line. That would prevent rolling back to the, the individual commits. So I I lost something there. Yeah if I understand correctly, you squash means you kind of consolidate all the commits into into one and then that gets merged into the main line, right? Correct.
2: From the main line to the production line, we want those
1: two histories
2: to be the exact same.
1: Okay, from main to production. What you're saying is from the feature branch, I don't want to roll those into the main line. Got it. I missed that part. But for main line and production, clearly you want to have the exact same ability to get them to the same state Anytime you want,
2: and that helps with a variety of things. Whenever you want to revert an individual commit, because an individual commit on the main line is intentionally a single unit of work, it provides a lot of ability for you to use tools like Git bisect, where you can actually identify which commit caused the problem. If you have fewer commits on your main line, that's just easier to work with.
1: That makes total sense. Couple keywords: classic trunk-based feature branches are no more than a day or two. Let's say you're working on a huge fee. This is the thing that I often don't like about the word feature because sometimes you could be working on a product mm-hmm. feature, but you're really just branching a piece of work or a ticket or a or small story or something. So it's not really the same thing. But in GitFlow, of course, it's called feature branching and all that. But the trunk-based workflow, you said like the engineers decide what to pick up. They branch from the mainline, They do their piece of work that gets squashed and rolled Merge back in, and then you have a more manually agreed process for merging the main into production, and then that kicks off the delivery. Absolutely. What's really nice about the Slack bot that we've built is that
0: anybody who we've designated access to can merge to the mainline. They can make a, a production deploy. Onboarding engineers is literally the stroke of adding a single line to a file, which is super, super nice. It's really accelerated our ability to merge, and also like it means that no one person on the team is really responsible. One of the the main reasons you were like, hey, we should have a different conversation about this is something that you know I said to you in a in a previous conversation, Etienne, which is that a lot of times I think what people talk about in terms of like trying to create a high performing team is building in psychological safety, and a lot of people would define psychological safety sort of in like the Google's Project Aristotle ethos around like you know team members feel safe to take risks and be vulnerable with each other. But in the context of software development, being able to take risks and be vulnerable with your team is as much systematic as it is human. And the reason that is, is because we're trying to essentially eliminate the consequences for making a mistake. And so by removing the barriers and by enabling people and giving people tools that keep them safe and that keep things flowing through the process very seamlessly. At a very base level, creating that type of environment is what is going to actually enable real psychological safety on your team. And without it, you can't have it.
1: Yes. And this is why I love this so much because baseline should be psychological safety. But what we really want is a super generative, experimental, innovative place for people to work inside of. And I think that with trunk-based development, feature flagging, all these tools When I talk to CTOs and I'm like, have you implemented that? They're like, well, and then it becomes a technical conversation. And what you just said, EJ, is is absolutely why I am pursuing this hard with technical organizations is the way you develop is a means. And the end, in my mind, is not velocity and speed and all that. It is the enjoyment that your engineers derive from working with you because ultimately they have to choose to roll out of bed and spend the only currency they have on this planet with you.
0: Ultimately, what it boils down to is
1: that if you want to change
0: the behavior of a team or improve the quality of the software that you're delivering, like, you fundamentally have to change your environment. And the better you design your environment, the less conscious effort you need as an engineer to be successful. So your environment ultimately should be a tailwind for your people, not a headwind.
1: I love that. Before we go to feature flags, for someone listening to this who says, oh, my goodness, I'm in the hairy mess that is Git flow. I have weeks, months old features or even forks of my code so we can sort of build parts of our system. Can you give us some tips as to how do we slice that elephant? What can they do to sort of get into that flow, TJ, that you guys have landed in? I think
2: a lot of it is building habits. One of the things that we do a lot is try to find ways to create pits of success, find ways to make the right thing easy. And that often requires operating in a world where you're looking at what habits do people have and how can we either leverage those habits to get with the behavior we want or adjust the habits so that it's better for everyone. In the case of a GitFlow style world where you have these old branches, one of the first things that you can do is investigate, do we need to keep any of these? One of the things that I've done from a product backlog perspective is look at the icebox. And if you have six months worth of features in your icebox, sometimes it's worth declaring bankruptcy and saying, you know what, these aren't worth it. And doing that with your Git branches might be worth it too, or might be a worthwhile endeavor because if they've been sitting around for weeks or months, especially if they haven't seen any like work on them, they might be worth just getting rid of. If they're important, they'll come back. And then from a getting your habits to do smaller based work It is, like EJ said, building an environment where that's actually possible. Slicing up your work so that you can do small pieces is really important. And that starts with the conversation between product and engineering and design and making sure that all three of those are aligned on delivering incremental value and not big bang releases around what you actually want to deliver to your customers.
1: Something I like to encourage people to do when they estimate work is to create sub tickets or tasks that represents one day's work. What do you guys think about that? Because I feel like humans can sort of know what this afternoon looks like, but they don't know what tomorrow looks like. And how about if I just say, let's do the mental exercise of what can you do today? And then tomorrow morning, we're like, yay, you did it. You added the Send API to the code. Great. Now, the next day, you do the next thing. What do you guys think about that? I think it depends. I see a stunned silence <laughs> and confusion on EJ's face. So, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really resonate with me, to be honest.
0: I think, you know, we work in such smaller pieces than that. Oh, hang on, hang on. So, you're saying even smaller than that? Absolutely. I mean, I think just like throw a statistic out there. I think just over like the last two weeks with the average pull requests per developer each day has been somewhere in the range of like four. So like we have people merging branches or merging to the main line at least four times a day per person. So I think in terms of how we think about breaking down work, it's literally the smallest thing you could possibly deliver value of for the customer. And so inherently, it's very challenging to estimate like what can someone get done in a day. In fact, you know I think it's been basically proven that Humans generally speaking will vastly overestimate what they can get done in one day or even a week, but vastly underestimate what they can get done in a year. And it kind of comes all the way back to like the habits. You know, habits are essentially the compound interest of self-improvement. And so breaking things down into the smallest pieces possible enables you to keep things
1: flowing all the time. I think it's funny because <laughs> because Because when I say break it down into what can be done in a day, I'm talking to people who say, oh, we create a ticket for the length of the sprint. And EJ is like, yo, dude, no, we're doing tickets that are like hours, not like in minutes. It's not what can be done in a day. Sometimes thinking of even the perspective of like, what can I do
0: in one day kind of goes against the ethos of like connecting with other humans too. I mean, I can't tell you how many times a day someone jumps into Slack and is like, hey, is anybody available to pair on this? Like, I've got something I'm looking at. And it's a very free-flowing environment where people jump in together, they collaborate, and that also just completely removes the barriers to success and to continuous delivery, right? Being able to jump in with someone and collaborate versus noodling on something for three or four hours by yourself and then submitting a pull request and waiting for that feedback, it just, all of those different touch points really slows down the process.
1: I get it. And so what I'm hearing is if you said what can be done in a day, this you to be available to other people because you're like, boy, if I jump in with Bob, I am going to be late on what I said I can do or my pod could do. What I'm hearing you say is, how can we pick our work in a way that still makes us available to help others? And also, how can we deliver
2: value to the customer? Because at the end of the day, my work, is not necessarily as important as the work that the team is doing and delivering to the customer. And so it's really about being able to say, hey, everything the team is doing is important. If we're getting something across the line, that's better than me noodling on something for four hours by myself. I would rather us spend time together because then that's building trust between our team, which is a foundational thing that we need. It's also unblocking someone else. And oftentimes, if you jump into a pairing session, you'll have time to both chat about each other's work. you were blocked but, and you raised the hand, but also we'll finish up what you're working on and then we can talk about what I had as well if I'm stuck.
1: If I am a developer on your team, walk me through a day in the life of an engineer inside of your process.
2: Most days, let's say you're, you're starting clean. You have nothing, no work in flight. You don't have any stories in JIRA that are assigned to you. The next thing you'll do is look at JIRA. Is there something that I can pick up right now and make progress on? Pick up that thing, start working on it, Ideally, these tickets, like we talked about, are doable in a few hours, or at least break it up yourself into a few tasks that you can deliver incrementally. Then let's say that you notice something in Slack where somebody says, hey, I'm stuck on XYZ. We jump into a pairing session, resolve that. Oftentimes, I feel like we end up pairing the rest of the day whenever we do that. It's one thing when it helps a lot whenever your team likes each other. So being able to spend time together is something that we enjoy.
1: Is that picking the story from the JIRA board? Is is there an interaction with the team on that? Is there a stand-up? How does that happen?
0: Yeah, so we do, we work in sort of like two-week iterations. And every other week we have what's called an iteration planning meeting where we get the team together and we sort of have like what's called like the up next column. And so the up next column is a column of bodies of work that are all in order of priority. And so how things get into that column is a whole other topic of conversation. There are bugs that show up in there. there's feature work, infrastructure work. there's all kinds of different types of work that can show up in that column, but it's always prioritized in the order of most importance. And then then you, of course, you have like an in progress, staging and then production. So it kind of, you know tickets kind of flow across the board like they would in most ticket tracking systems.
1: Like I said, like I asked TJ, if I pick something up, I'm technically gonna be creating my branch, working on it, and then merge it back. If I'm pairing with someone, I'm pairing on their branch, uh, ostensibly, and we work together on that branch, that thing gets merged back. Then within whatever development process you have, whether it's stand-ups or sprint planning or whatever, a lot of interaction in Slack on, okay, I'm working on this, and then we pair, like TJ said, maybe you can pair for the rest of the day or the next couple days. But I love kind of what you said around... The assumption that everything the team works on is important. I sometimes feel like, depending on my own stress levels, and maybe in the role of CTO or dev manager or process manager, that I become the judge of, oh, no, no, that's not important. You should work on this. Or, no, no, you've spent way too much time on this. Let's move it to that. What are your thoughts on that? I think because the stories and tasks are broken down enough,
2: we're able to be nimble about changing what we're working on at any given time. So I don't know that we ever have that problem necessarily, or it becomes very obvious very quickly. Like if someone slows down and isn't delivering regular source code or changes or pairing with somebody, it's not something that we like track. We don't have a number anywhere that says like, Joe Schmo delivered 17 pull requests yesterday or anything like that. But it's kind of a feel that the team has because we're all like able to keep it on track of each other. The interaction between the team around picking something up and how do we like make sure that there's no stepping on toes is another thing. Oftentimes, those tools like JIRA become bookkeeping. You don't think about actually like keeping them up to date. And so there is a bunch of asynchronous conversation happening in Slack where it's like, hey, I got stuck on something and the ticket was broken down enough so that happens quickly. It's all about like creating those fast feedback cycles at every level of our process so that nobody ever gets stuck for too long to make sure that the feature is actually getting delivered at a real good cadence. You always get that dopamine hit whenever things work out well. And so we want to keep that
0: feedback loop to dopamine hit as quick as possible
1: so how large is your team just so we can know people can know what we're talking about yeah
0: so in total when you think about like full-time product engineering and contractors we're about anywhere from seven to eight people on the average day so we're a relatively small team but you'd be shocked at what we're able to get done
1: well and my question is mostly around what tj said around the noticing when someone's falling behind or is less communicative. It seems like whether you're part of a massive team or a smaller team, whatever pods you're a part of to just have that social awareness that, you know, the classic issue of a developer going off in a corner and struggling by themselves. I mean, I'm assuming there's constant coaching that there's a better way. One of the things that I saw in my time at Pivotal Labs
2: was there is a kind of like right team size and it falls into that two pizza team. If you ever heard that term? It's about keeping your team size small enough that it could be fed by two pizzas. That's generally about the size of cognitive load that individuals can actually handle with interactions on a given day. And so keeping your teams that small is actually really important. Now, as a overall organization, you're obviously going to have more people than that. But I don't remember the exact name of the terminology, but it's whenever you have multiple individuals, the number of connections is what, N squared or two to the N and so that's a lot of interactions that people have to keep on top of. And so if you can keep that number small, it keeps the cognitive load lower.
1: So let's move to feature flagging. So you have a nice process for merging and keeping the branches short and short-lived. Do you guys use feature flagging? We do. So this is how we
2: manage the conversation you were talking about with features at the different levels. And so there might be a developer task that is like every factor, or there might be a larger overall customer-facing thing that is going to take multiple weeks to actually deliver. So while we're delivering customer value at at a regular clip multiple times per day, there may be a particular part of that or a large swath uh, feature that we want to deliver all at once. So we'll use a feature flagging tool to wrap that functionality and create a a seam in the code so that you either have the feature on or feature off that we can do percentage-based rollouts or individual user-based rollouts or in our application we have communities and so we can actually roll out to individual communities as well, which allows us to try something out for someone, which can be valuable from a feature perspective. Or if we have something that is like a upcoming data migration and we want to make sure that things are going to work properly with two different versions of this data path, we can turn that on for a few people and see if it works. And we do that with either a percentage-based rollout or as I mentioned, the other various versions of those flags.
1: Yeah. So the progressive rollout, the Canary releases, that kind of stuff. One thing I find particularly attractive about feature flags is that you could potentially empower product managers or non-technical people to turn those things on and off. Do you guys have that?
2: We do. The tool is actually available. There's a UI available in our admin tooling where anybody in our product organization can go in and manage those. We do have those versions so we can see when things change, which is actually valuable from a incident perspective as well. Being able to look back at the history of those flags and what versions they were in at any given time lets Mm. us denote what went wrong if something goes wrong.
1: And is the tool a home-rolled tool or some gem that you guys are using?
2: As we said, we're a Ruby on Rails shop. And so there's a tool called Flipper that manages your feature flags in your database. And then we wrap that with a tool called Paper Trail that does the versioning.
1: Okay, cool. Something that's driving me a little nuts is let's say you have a feature that changes the database fundamentally how do you separate that for features that when it's on or when it's off do you change an api endpoint to a different database or how do you do that
2: that gets into all kinds of different techniques and strategies additive changes are always safe almost always safe and so you get into problems whenever you start trying to change the behavior or change the structure of something and the easiest way to do this if it's an underlying thing that's not a public api is to add a new thing migrate over to the new thing, and then remove the old thing.
0: Mm. And so
2: this can happen at various different levels. It can happen at the method level, the class level, the database level with a column or a table. And we do that all the time. These are like private APIs. The customer is not aware of them. So we can do that. That becomes a very rote process that you just work through day in and day out. Our database, as over the many years, has accumulated lots of tables and columns that are now unnecessary. And so we're actually working through the process of removing those unnecessary tables and columns. The same process that I just described works there too. You rename it to something that you don't use, make sure that nothing breaks, and then remove the old thing.
1: So is this the ideal state then one where if whether the feature is on or off, it points to the same data structure, you're not you're not trying to host two different things. So whatever method you use, it sounds like your approach is, hey, let's always make sure that whether the feature is on or off, it's an additive feel to it and not completely separate store. You try very hard to
2: avoid destructive changes. And you only do those once you can verify that it's safe to do so. So you might add logs around the thing to make sure it's not being used if it's a method or a data access. We even use alerting sometimes where it's like, I need to really be sure that this method is no longer called or this column is no longer accessed. And so we will actually add a exception around that that says
0: notify a developer and on call if this actually gets hit. Yeah, I think there's some other techniques too, Etienne, that that we've used in the past, you know, in terms of like, it's oftentimes it can be very difficult to formulate a mental model around how to migrate from point A to point B. And oftentimes what that means for us is adding the new column to a database and not even be using it and do double writes for a while. And then you start switching over your reads to the point where all of a sudden now you're reading from the new column and you verify that everything is still working. And I think for a lot of folks, that feels like a lot of extra work. But what it also does is it allows you to break everything into really tiny pieces and keep moving every day at the same clip. Sort of like we're also a very test-heavy shop. We pretty much subscribe to most test-driven development ideologies. And I think for a lot of folks out there that are detractors from that or people who believe that it takes too much time or there's not enough value there. But whenever you work in an environment where you do write tests for your code or where you do things in these ways... You start to realize how much value there is in safety and in confidence, and that allows you to move in these micro, paper cut size changes all day, every day. And and again, like I said, it kind of feeds into that. Being able to get one percent better a day, you know, makes you like thirty seven times better in a year. So trying not to worry so much about like what can I get done in a day or what can I get done this week, or trying to do the, the cognitive burden of all the mental gymnastics that requires is just focusing on like how can I deliver the smallest amount of value as consistently as possible.
1: I see that as a recurring theme is really bite-sized chunks, small batches. Just makes so much sense that the conversations feel like so much more manageable around a two-paragraph conversation versus go read the whole book and then come back and let's discuss what we took away from it, you know. So on the testing, and I kind of want to weave this in with legacy, do you guys deal with legacy code? TJ, you kind of alluded to that. Oh, definitely. (laughs) Um, So, maybe context of this might flow from TJ to EJ to the C suite, but hey, you know, we want to quickly add these things. Last time you guys did it, it went really quickly. And now you're telling me it's going to take two months, three months, four months. And clearly, because there's some legacy or refactoring involved, the business starts wrestling with this technical debt issue. We don't have to get into all those conversations, maybe we should, but how do you deal with your legacy code in as much as the business seems to want you to deliver faster? Yeah. Let me rephrase it, your customer being excited for the thing that they were hoping they would get. For sure. From a technical perspective, we have a couple different strategies to
2: operate in legacy code. A lot of them come from working effectively with legacy code book by Michael Feathers. The biggest one that's actually saved our our bacon quite a bit is writing characterization tests. And so this strategy is, I have some code that is not currently tested and I need to make a change in it. It's big, it's hairy, it's scary. The first thing that you can do is wrap that in a series of tests that characterize exactly what it's doing. And it's a little bit different than what most tests are that people are writing because you're actually going to even characterize bugs. And so oftentimes when you're working with legacy code, there's something that's wrong in it. And you'll write these tests that are like, it returns true when da, da 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 And then you think about what you just wrote and you go, it's not supposed to do that. And you have to have the diligence. You have to work in the really small steps of just do the characterization tests. Just characterize what's happening right now and deliver that. Then you can come back and you can make those changes with confidence. You can make those changes with safety because you know what's actually changing. Oftentimes, one of the reasons that developers often go into, off into a corner is because they get like really excited by these hard technical problems. And you can mitigate a lot of that by making them the smaller steps, by making it more about let's deliver features, which that actually is like a habit change, but it feels really good when you can do that. Another one is like, we do make the things better 1% every day or sometimes more than that by tidying. Kent Beck has a whole series right now about tidying your code and making sure that you're like, it's often called refactoring, but these are even more like micro refactors. These are things about, I'm going to rename this variable while I'm here because I see that it might have a better name or I didn't understand what was there. And so that's a small tidying you can do to make it more clear what's going on. Those over time build up and make your code easier to work with, whether it's legacy or not.
1: I love that. EJ, the business wrestles. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I think this is sort of like the eternal conundrum for technology leaders, right? I mean, every business wants to be able to deliver as much value as humanly possible while still also keeping the lights on, staying within security compliance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think that there's ever going to be a time where there's not a healthy level of tension between those two things. When we look at how we manage our product roadmap, I'll say that, you know, over the last year of being a CTO, this has been one of the areas of opportunity that I feel like I've grown in the most is like really understanding, you know, coming from more of an engineering and technical background to having to have those conversations around, you know, what are our customers looking for? What do we need as a business? How can we have a great relationship? Because let's face it, there's not a single business out there that can be successful relying on you know one leg of the stool. If you have a great engineering team, but your go-to-market team uh, is not f- functioning, or if you have a great go-to-market team, but the engineering team can't deliver, or your customer service falls down, you need every single leg of the stool to be successful. And oftentimes what that requires is a lot of connection and trust and empathy for each other in terms of like what each team is up against and having those negotiations and sometimes what that looks like is it looks like delaying an initiative that we want to do because we need to get something out the door for a customer sometimes it means cutting scope tj has a really good analogy around this is that like there's three things in software engineering and you only get two i don't know that i believe that completely but i would say generally speaking you know it's always a negotiation and so i think having these conversations is also slightly easier whenever you are able to consistently deliver and deploy to production on a daily basis. Because if people can feel and they can see the progress every day and you're able to communicate effectively with the business and show them that even if they don't completely understand what you're working on, that the work is getting done every day and what you're delivering is consistency, it makes a lot of those conversations easier. So the big takeaway here is that by following a lot of the processes that we sort of subscribe to, those conversations get easier and easier and easier over time because the healthier your code base gets every day, the easier it is to work in every day, the faster you can deliver every day. And so, like I said, it kind of goes back to that. Your environment should be a tailwind, not a headwind. If you're always investing and you're always getting a little bit better every day, then what that should eventually do is create a lot of tailwinds for you and hopefully a lot of success too.
1: Mm. The main takeaways for me, there's there's a lot here for me. what I'm remembering and standing out to me is the benefit of the doubt to the team that what you're working on is important. I love that. It doesn't mean that everything is important. And what I'm saying is that leadership trait of, hey, what you're doing is valuable. The energy you're spending is appreciated. The erroring on the side of availability to help each other, to foster that psychological safety that nothing Is too stupid or weird, but that there's constantly tools in place to gather around the small fires and and have a chat. I do love EJ. You mentioned sort of this thing about the more you're sort of delivering and in the zone, the easier the conversations get. What I'm hearing from that also, though, is it's almost like the more conversations you're willing to have, the easier those conversations get. And I think in talking to so many CTOs and their processes, this thing about we're going to only have conversations when it's necessary or when it's absolutely necessary. I feel like this small batches approach is really encouraging the business to listen to what is going on in the development process, even beyond the development team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And full transparency, like I think one of the mistakes that I made earlier on in in my technical leadership career is like waiting too long to have those conversations. I mean, that's a mistake I've made probably even within the last year for sure, is just not being as transparent maybe with the business as I am with my team. I mean, if I rearranged what you just said, it literally is like our four core values as a business, which are do the right thing, be generous, collaborate with one another, and be transparent. You can take those core values and you can put them like within our team and that works. But if we don't also embody those across teams, Well, then that doesn't work. And so I think one of the key learnings for me over time has been be willing to have that conversation more frequently, more often. These things are a process. you know. I think there's always going to be a healthy tension between business needs and engineering needs and things like that. And I think that's okay. And I think that ultimately building trust with one another and having those conversations frequently is what will will help you get through it.
1: Yeah, I like that. And then as far as the TDD and the I love what you said about the characterization tests for legacy code. I love that, TJ. These are really solid ways for teams to just relax and just understand that the state is what it is. And that 1% improvement, like you guys said, is classic. I love that. Sounds amazing. Do you guys sit in a circle and touch the of your hands? If we were all in
0: person, we might. Yeah, we feel super lucky. Honestly, I feel like we have a really great team and we You know, we do weekly retros and we're fortunate enough to be able to do some offsites. You know, we're a fully remote team. So I think that's another thing that's always, that always kind of presents a challenge, but we make it work.
1: Well, since you guys didn't ask me any questions, I feel like we're done. Awesome.
0: (laughs) Honestly, I can't thank you enough for inviting us on. I mean, obviously, you can tell this is something that we're extremely passionate about. Anytime you want to talk shop, we're always happy to do it.
1: Yeah, I'd love that. And honestly, EJ, I've loved my conversations with you. You have a conviction about wanting to do the right thing that I find pretty attractive. So I'd love to get more of you and your team involved in discussing this ethos and being a values driven organization. I think so many of us have the so called agile processes supersede anything and everything we feel and do because it's the so-called way to do it and i'd really get the sense from you that no you sit down and you say well what works for us what are we driven by how does that galvanize the culture at our organization versus just sort of laying it on the altar of 30 year old thinking some of it's gold But some of it's not being implemented in the right way or is being you're being lazy. So I love the energy and the action that's happening over there at Mobilize to really think through this stuff.
0: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I don't I don't think you could have said it any better. I've had the privilege of working at a bunch of really high performing great organizations over time in my career. But if there's any one takeaway I have from any of those organizations is that like having one dogmatic ideology about how to run a software team or whatever will always get you into a place of misery and pain every team is different and all of those different practices or tools that's what they are they're tools you need to be flexible and you have to figure out what works for your team because trying to do it someone else's way is a really good way of getting yourself tied into knots
1: there we go podcast producer adds some amazing music right now just (laughs) like like a robert redford moment it's kind of what i see on it. Okay, thanks guys. See you soon. Appreciate you. Awesome. Thank you so much.